Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I keep saying I'm going to make it through a whole chapter in a lesson, and I've not done it yet. So, we'll see. If you remember, back in chapter 1, Paul opens up by telling them what they have in Christ, and then he... uh, talks to them a little bit about the fact that there are divisions in the church. He says, some of you say you're a follower of Paul, some say you're a follower of Apollo, some of Cephas. And uh, he says, what are you doing that for? He said, we're all of Christ. And then in chapter 2, he goes into a discussion of the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Well, today we're going to return to that theme that we started in chapter 1, the divisions of the church. But first, let's remind ourselves what we talked about last week. We talked about the Holy Spirit and the fact that the Holy Spirit reveals God's truth to us. There are things that we would not know if the Holy Spirit did not teach us through God's Word. And there are things that the unbelieving world cannot know of the things of God because they do not have the Holy Spirit illuminating it for them. So, why did we have this digression between chapter 1, where we talked about the division of the church, and in chapter 3, where we'll pick up today, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? So he began with an identification of the problem. The problem is the divisions in the church. And then he set before them in chapter 2 this idea that there's a world's way of doing things and there's God's way of doing things. And now he's emphasizing to them that by having these divisions, they're acting just like the world. We mentioned before that Corinth was a seat of learning at the time of Greek learning, even though Corinth was at this point in time a Roman city in the midst of Greece. Um, So there would be different schools of thought. This philosopher would have his school, this philosopher would have his school, and they would uh, argue among themselves all day. And the church had fallen into the same problem, where this piece would argue against this piece and this piece and that piece, Because each of them thought they were the keepers of the true truth. And Paul says, why are you doing this? Let's back up and take this verse by verse. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. We see this other places in the scripture where Paul and others talk about the fact there are things that I want to tell you. Things that you need to know, but you're not ready to hear it. You're not ready 
to hear the truth. You are, in fact, mere infants. Now, that's interesting because Corinth, the city, and Corinth, the church, prided themselves on their knowledge and their understanding of things. And uh, this is kind of a slap in the face to them. To come to them and say, you are mere infants, I can't tell you the real truth. I'm telling you truth. He's not telling them falsehood. It's not a division there. It's a division between here's the starting truth. It's like, I mean, I was a math major in school, okay? You start in math in first grade or kindergarten, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And then you work your way up, and pretty soon you're doing terribly bizarre things. Okay? Now, if you went to that first grader and gave him the terribly bizarre things, uh, they would look at you and go, huh? Why? Because they didn't have the foundation. They didn't have the basic things understood. So the question is, what were the basic things that the church at Corinth did not understand? My contention is, I mean, they had listened to Paul for several years teaching. And, you know, Paul's a pretty good teacher. They had Apollos, who was a pretty good teacher. They had other sources teaching them the truth. They probably understood a goodly amount of theology, they understood the Old Testament. They understood these things, but still there was some fundamental truth that was lacking in their knowledge. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. You know, you start out with the baby by giving them liquids and milk, and then you move them on to that mushy stuff. And then you move them on to a little more solid food. You know, when we had our first child, we were very careful, you know. You, go, you follow the, you know, the strict path of what you feed them. By the time we got to our fourth or fifth child, you know, if we were eating it, they were eating it. <laughs> but they still had to have teeth. They still had to have, I mean, there was still a progression that they had to have. When we lived in Virginia, we went to an apple orchard, a small group Bible study that we were in, took all our families, and uh, my daughter at the time had one or two teeth, and we gave her an apple. An hour later, the apple was gone. Perseverance. <laughs> but the point is that infants require one level of nourishment because they just can't handle anything more than that. And as you grow up, you require different forms of nourishment because that which you were forced to eat as a child, you probably couldn't be forced to eat today. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready for the truth. <sighs> Paul had spent two years with these people. Paul, you know, we're not talking some fly-by-night pastor here. We're talking the best pastor there was. And they're still not ready. What's wrong? What happened to the church? 
Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. The problem that we see in the church at Corinth, and would I say in the church today, is that the church at Corinth had listened to Paul for two years, got all this truth, and then Paul left, and they wanted to look just like the world around them. They wanted the truth of Paul. They wanted the truth of Jesus Christ, but they also wanted to have the same arguments, the same divisions, the same issues that the world around them had. Their fundamental problem was not that they didn't have access to the deep theological truths. Their fundamental problem was that they were still worldly. They were still living according to the flesh, as it says in some translations. And the flesh, when Paul uses that term, he's using it to describe life as it was before you accepted Christ. Remember last week's lesson. The Holy Spirit is living in you. The Holy Spirit is revealing the truth to you. And and you're ignoring it. You're ignoring it because you want what the world has to offer while at the same time pretending, acting like you're good Christian people. You are still worldly. That is his complaint against the church at Corinth. They have not turned their back on the ways of the world. They are trying to find a synchronism, a merger of the ways of the world and the ways of God. And that's why we had chapter 2. The ways of God are foolishness to the world. They don't understand them. They can't understand them. So why are you, church at Corinth, why are you, church in the United States, trying to, to have one foot firmly planted in both of these camps. You can't do it. You can't do it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still, not, you are, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? What is the indication that they are still worldly? That there are jealousies and quarrels among them. Huh. That's kind of scary. How many of you have had a jealousy or a qu- No, don't raise your hand. <laughs> the fact that they were continuing the strife and conflict that the worldly philosophers in Corinth had was an indication that they were still seeking their own glory. I wanted to demonstrate to you that I'm the best teacher, that I am the best leader, that I have the best ideas, just like the philosopher down the street is trying to impress you. And Paul says, no, as long as there's jealousies and quarrels among you, 
There are certain truths of the gospel that you cannot understand. That's interesting. You know, you would think you could sit in this classroom, you could go to the seminary, you could read all of the books and acquire all the knowledge and still be a wretched person. But he's saying no. There are certain truths that you won't understand as long as you're still trying to be worldly. There are certain things that you can't learn because there are truths in Christianity that are experiential. They are part of who you are. They are part of allowing the Spirit that we talked about last week, allowing the Spirit to work in your life to accomplish certain things. Specifically here, getting rid of the pride that produces the jealousy and the quarrels. And if we don't allow the Spirit to do that in our lives, if we tell the Spirit no, the Spirit will go, fine, we'll wait a while. And when you're ready, I'll teach you the truth. That's a loose translation because sometimes the Spirit says, okay, let me make your life rougher until you understand the truth. Or, I mean, the Spirit has a variety of different ways of whacking us up the side of the head with the truth sometimes. But the reality is there is a path, a progression of maturity in Christ and in the understanding of Christ that involves more than just head knowledge, although that's there. It involves us living that truth out and responding to the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. So we need to remind ourselves the distinction between justification, which is where God saves us once for all, and the process of sanctification where we work that out in our daily lives and we grow, we mature in Christ. And that's what he's talking about right here. He's not questioning whether or not they're believers. In fact, he's rather confident they're believers. They're just babies. They should be much further down the path, but they're not because, and the indication that he sees is because of their quarreling and their jealousies among each other. Now, once again, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But how many of you have ever been jealous because of the way God is working through some other believer? Don't raise your hand. But you have, haven't you? You see someone who's, you know, really effective, that's really doing great, and you go, gosh, they're probably lousy people anyway. And we start trying to cut them down. And we go, why? Why? Because we're jealous. Because our pride doesn't like the fact that someone else is here and we're here in the scale of maturity. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that if you're still looking in those kinds of categories, that shows why you're not being effective. Because you have the wrong categories. 
Are you not acting like mere men? Why is that an insult? Well, to your ladies, maybe, but... No, it's talking about human beings. You know, in the Bible, we do use the word men as the generic term for human beings. Why is that an insult to them to tell them they're just acting like mere humans? I mean, don't you hear that all the time today? Well, I'm only human. No, you're not. If you are a believer, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and you are more than just a mere human. You are an eternal being in a human body that's going to reside with God forever. Why do you act like a mere human being? Why do you settle for acting like a mere human being? Because that's what we're used to. That's what everybody around us does. That's what we expect from people. C.S. Lewis uses the illustration of, it isn't, well, he, he, he says, it's not that we expect too much from God. It's that we're willing to accept so little. We're like children playing with mud pies in the gutter, not realizing that there's a huge beach with all this beautiful sand because we've never seen it. We're just playing in our gutter. We're accepting too little. We're willing to act like mere human beings. For when one of you, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? As long as your affection, as long as your point of emphasis is looking at mere human beings, you're going to be a mere human being. Now it's interesting. Paul, Apollos, these are pretty good teachers. I mean, let's face it. Paul wrote, what, half the New Testament? I mean, these aren't slouches. These aren't, you know, you know your, your first-year seminary student trying to wade through a sermon here. These are pretty good guys. But as long as you're following human beings, you will act like a mere human being. And he says, no, no, we are to follow Christ. Remember where we ended up with last week's lesson? But we have the mind of Christ. What he's telling them is we have the mind of Christ, but then he turns around and says, but you're not using it. You have available to you more than you're willing to put into practice what, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? You know, we see Paul's humility here because he's willing to include himself in this list. I mean, we talked about this back three or four weeks ago when we talked about the beginning of these divisions and, you know, who is Paul, who is Cephas. <coughs> and we talked about the fact that, you know, I might be willing to talk about all those other teachers out there and why you shouldn't listen to them, but I might be reluctant to talk about me, okay? But Paul's not. He knows. 
He knows where he stands in the pecking order. As he says in chapter 1, did Paul die for your sins? Huh. I'm not sure the laugh is there, but I think he wrote, I think he did it when he was uh, uh, writing the letter. What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. Only servants through whom you came to believe. Now, let's tear this apart. I go out to share the gospel with someone. I go out to present to them the gospel. What am I? Am I the Savior? No. Am I the person who has to beat them over the head, pin them to the ground until they accept the gospel? No. I am simply a servant. I am simply an instrument that's being used to share the gospel. We know for a fact from the scripture that if God wants to use a donkey to deliver his message, God will use a donkey to deliver his message. Or stones. stones. You know, if you're into the King James, that's when you're allowed to say jackass. We can't do that today, though. But if the King James, you can say it. God can use a donkey to spread his message, but he chooses to use us. Kind of humbling, right? But the wonderful thing is, he chooses to use us to spread the gospel message. We are only servants. Yes? When do you know if you're following Paul or you've transitioned to be a true follower of Christ? I don't know. When do you think? Well, you move to having an indwelling of the Holy Spirit the day that you become a believer. Okay, okay we're... Because we can ignore the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can suppress the Holy Spirit. Okay? Go ahead. That's true. That's good. The words of God abide in us. The words of people, they come and go. Okay? They just... Gosh, we're running them off already. Sorry. No, it's a good question. Okay? Because Paul... Gosh. Oh, come on now. We're causing divisions in the church already. 
Does anybody else want to leave? <laughs> leave now or forever hold your peace or something? <laughs> They're following Apollos next door. <laughs> Where were we? Paul, go ahead. <laughs> The observation was made that as long as we as Christians are barely distinguishable from everyone else in the world, we are still, in fact, still worldly. And when that distinction is there, we have crossed over and ceased to at least strive to be worldly, whatever that means. Paul, in a couple of chapters, is going to tell us, imitate me. Now, that's a rather dangerous thing for a teacher to say. I mean, I'll, I'll guarantee you, I'm never going to stand up here and say, imitate me. Okay? You'd be in a lot of trouble. But Paul is going to say it in the context of a father talking to a child. He's going to tell them, I was your father. I led you along in your infancy. And like a father, a good father, will look at his children and say, watch me, let me show you how to do this particular activity. Paul turns to his congregation at Corinth and says, watch me how I do this. Now having said that, if a child continues for its entire life, to only do that which the father does in the sense of no initiative on his own, we begin to think at some point this child is not growing up. This child has not moved to the next level. We, when we become Christians, there are certain authors that we read, there are certain uh, preachers that we like, and we grow in that ministry. But if we progress on, we either grow beyond that or we recognize that, you know, this minister, this author that I really like, they're a human being just like me. God has blessed other teachers. God has led other people to write great things. And I can learn from all that God has given the church collectively or I can stop and say, if my favorite teacher doesn't say it, it must be heresy. And if my special teacher um, uh, thinks it's bad, then let's break out the rocks and stone them. And all of a sudden, I have locked myself into this small box where I am following this human teacher and not growing beyond that 
to all of the truth that God has revealed to all of humanity. So, or all of believers. So, how do you know? You know when you've stopped and you start being more concerned about arguing with your Christian neighbors. We're looking at Corinth here in particular. You're more concerned about arguing with your Christian neighbors about why your particular favorite preacher, author, whatever is right and theirs is wrong. Then you are in progressing to what is the truth? What is God trying to teach us? By all indications, by all indications, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and others had no part in this controversy. None. It was their followers who were listening to them, interpreting it, and fighting it out. There's one particular uh, speaker who we used to listen to a lot. And, you know, some of his followers would do wacko things. Now, you'd talk to him, and he would go like, yeah, that's stupid. Why would you do that? But, you know, that's the way our human minds, we clamp in on something, and we go, this has to be true no matter what. And that's when we are stifling the Holy Spirit. We are not allowing the Holy Spirit to move us on to the next level. There are Christian authors that I read earlier in my life, great Christian men, who I don't read much anymore because I decided they were wicked and evil. No, they're not wicked and evil. They met a need that the Holy Spirit showed me in my life at a particular point in time, and now I've moved to some other need. (laughs) There's no shortage of those. (laughs) What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. The humbling fact is that we are mere servants. The amazing fact is that God allows us, as mere servants, to lead others to Christ. We don't save people. We don't die for their sins. We don't convert them. We simply lead them to Christ. And it is amazing that God allows us that privilege in our lives. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. Huh. We have Apollos. We have Paul. We have Cephas. We have the other apostles, we have other teachers. And what he's saying here is God has given each of these people a particular task, a particular mission, a particular message to share. Now, we would like to believe, and I believe so, that there are no conflicts between these. It's just that they're reaching different audiences, different congregation, different backgrounds, different needs. So while Peter, Cephas, may be over talking to the Jewish converts and Paul may be over talking to the pagan Gentile converts, the message may look different, but it's the same message. God has assigned each a particular task and we are to be faithful in our particular task. Billy Graham is, was a great evangelist. He would get up 
and he would share the gospel in what many would say was a rather simple sermon, and thousands of people would respond. That was his calling, evangelism. Then you have someone like, say, a Francis Schaeffer, who is dealing with a different group in a whole different way as he looks at art and music and the worldview implications of all that's going on. But they're all doing what God wants them to do. They don't look the same. They don't sound the same. But they're all sharing the same gospel message. We are only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. Now, if I were to ask you, who led you to Christ? Most of you would have some idea of a particular person, a particular event, and a particular sermon. Some of you wouldn't. But irregardless of whether you can or can't identify a particular person, the reality is is there was probably somebody before that and somebody before that who shared some idea that planted some seed that uh, took some idea that you already had and helped it to grow a little bit. And some of these we, we don't know. Some of them we do know. Some of them we don't know. We're oblivious to the fact that somebody planted some idea. You were flipping channels on the TV and some idea came into your head that matched what you were thinking and the Holy Spirit used it to further the growth of the gospel message. You know, I grew up a good Southern Baptist. And, uh, you know, people used to complain about Baptists that we really only had one sermon. And they just changed the, you know, the verses to go with it. That sermon is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I mean, it's evangelism, and that's great. I'm all in favor of evangelism. But then we begin to see things as either... I either successfully converted this person when I shared the gospel or I didn't. So I either won or I lost, I succeeded or I failed. Years ago, I was introduced to a, um, a, a graph. I don't remember who it was that came up with it. It was the Navigators or somebody. And basically it had a, well, you remember a number line from your math days? And on one side was minus 10, minus 9, minus 8, 0 was in the middle, and it worked its way to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, up to 10. Zero in the middle was conversion, going from unbelief to belief. Minus 10 was a militant atheist, and plus 10 was probably a glorified Christian. We'll get there when we die. But what it was trying to demonstrate was that each of us are on this scale at some point. And some of us can help that three move to a five. Some of us can help that minus six move to minus four. Now at some point, that minus six, who becomes a minus four, who becomes a minus two, who becomes a one, minus one, 
At some point, conversion occurs. What Paul is telling us is that some guy took the first step, someone helped with the second, someone else with the third. But you know what? It's God that does it all. We are simply the instruments that God uses to move people on this path of conversion. And Paul says, you know what? That's good enough for me. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. He's going to talk about two different pictures. Two different pictures of the Christian life. One of them is the picture of the field, and the next is the picture of a building. So he starts with the picture of a field. Now, I am not much of a gardener, okay? I do know that if you mow the weeds, they look green just like the grass. That's about all I need to know. But if you're going to be a gardener, if you're going to be a farmer, then you know that there's certain things that you must do. You must plant the seed in the ground. I guess before that you have to prepare the ground, but you must plant the seed in the ground. You must see to it that the, the, the seed has the right nutrients, you have to see to it that it has enough water. You have to see to it that it has enough sunlight because we know that these are the things that allow that seed to grow. But why does the seed grow? Why does the seed itself take water, take sunlight, later after it comes out of the ground take the nutrients out of the soil why does it take these things and do anything but just sit there because God has created seeds in certain ways to respond to certain things and to grow as a result of that ultimately the growth of the plant is because God has ordained plants to grow. It isn't a rock. You can plant a rock in the ground, and you can water that rock. You can feed that rock. You can talk to that rock. You will not have a rock tree at the end of the day because there is no life in it. If there is going to be life in the seed, it is because God put life in the seed. And if a human being is going to respond to the gospel message, it will be because God has put life in that human being. Now, does that mean the water is irrelevant? Does that mean the nutrients are irrelevant? Does that mean the... No. 
God has ordained that those things are necessary for the growth of the seed. But the growth comes from God. Yes. Until we die to ourselves. It has to give up wanting to be a seed. Does it want? I don't know. <coughs> it has to die to being a seed. Yes. couldn't make a seed starting with the base elements. So, let's read this once again. Apollos watered. No, I planted the seed. Apollos watered. Paul came to Corinth and started a church. He started going to the synagogue. They didn't like him. He moved next door, literally. And he started a church. Apollos came along and started leading the church when Paul left. Okay? Every indication, as I said earlier, is that Apollos is a really good guy. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. Where is the room for pride in this path? There's not any. There's no room for pride. All Paul is doing is poking holes in the ground and planting seeds. All Apollos is doing is going around with a water bucket, dumping water on things. Are they necessary? Yes. As a servant of God, they are necessary, but they are not sufficient. There is no room for pride. Yet there is room for recognizing that Paul is doing what Paul is supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be planting seed. We are supposed to be watering. Don't take from this that, oh, I get to sit in the corner and do nothing. If you sit in the corner and do nothing, your garden is going to grow weeds. We are called to work the field. But we are not to do it in such a way that it produces pride and jealousy when God has chosen the neighbor's field to produce bigger tomatoes than ours. Hmm. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. That's a pretty strong statement. We're not anything. Well, you're something. But ultimately, when it comes to the conversion, the growth of the seed, it is God working through the Holy Spirit, applying the blood of Jesus Christ to save and convert the person. 
but only God who makes things grow. Ultimately, it is God's doing. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. Jesus said, I only have one purpose, and that is to do the will of him who sent me. Paul is saying, I only have one purpose. I'm going to plant or I'm going to water wherever God tells me to plant or God tells me to water. The church at Corinth says, I want to grow as Christians. I want to be better than my neighbor. I want to show off my intelligence to the pagans down the street. I want to enjoy the same. I want to be, I want all these other things. And Paul says, you're still being worldly because you're settling for the world's way of doing things. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. Observation, there are going to be rewards. We're going to get to that uh, in the next section, which will probably be next week. There will be rewards. Sometimes that bothers some people. You know, it sounds rather mercenary that uh, I'm doing something expecting a reward. We'll talk about that next week. For we are God's fellow workers. There are places in the scripture that talk about us being servants of God. There are talk about places where it talks about us being slaves. You can be a slave to God or a slave to sin. Pick one. This is a beautiful term here. We are God's fellow workers. You know, Jesus looked at the fields. No. He looked at the people and he said, it's wide unto harvest. Who is going to go with me to help me work the fields? And he lamented the fact that there was lots of work that needed to be done and there were few workers. And what we're told right here is that we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. We'll talk about the building analogy next week now here's where the analogy gets a little strange okay you are God's field as believers God causes the growth in our lives but the analogy gets a little odd because we then go work in the fields God causes the growth in us that allows us to go help others to grow, to be used as an instrument of God to work the fields with the recognition that we really are still part of the fields. What is, in this whole book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's biggest complaint against the church at Corinth. It is simply this. 
you're still acting worldly. We'll talk about that more at length because we live in the same situation. As I said when we started 1 Corinthians, Corinth was a wealthy city, very multicultural, very religious in the sense of they worshipped a lot of different things. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to talk to them about that worldliness slipping into the church itself. And that's what we started seeing today. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you did plant the seeds in our hearts. Thank you that there were servants willing to water that seed to help it to grow. And I pray, Lord, that we would respond to the Holy Spirit and fight the worldliness that so easily encroaches into our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.